Lovely. Uh, I've been up at uh, Alder Road this morning, speaking up there, and then came down here. It's lovely to walk in here as the worship's coming towards an end and just feel the sense of God's presence, the buzz, the energy in the place. And uh, really lovely to be down with you here this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Matthew. I lead the team that leads our congregation up at Alder Road, but uh, come down here every so often as well, and it's great to be here today. Uh, yesterday morning, Saturday, uh, along with John Clark and various others from the church, I was doing park run. I like to do park run on Saturday mornings if I can get there. And one of the things about park run is every week they say, who's new? And they give a nice round of applause to anybody who's, who's, who's new at park run. There's now at Paul Park Run, normally between 800 and 1,000 people there on a Saturday morning, and there's always somebody who's there for the first time. And it's interesting to watch people who start getting into park run, how uh, that can begin to take over their lives. That people come along very nervously to their first park run, thinking, am I going to be okay? Will I be welcomed? What do I do? Which way do I go? And then they get into it, and they love it, and they find a sort of sense of community and, and sometimes an element of competition, and, and people just start to get obsessed by the whole running thing, and people start to obsess about what kind of trainers to buy and what kind of kit to buy, and they get their little phone strapped to put in their arms so they can see how fast they're running and record where they've been and tell, share it with their friends, and, 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 and the whole of life seems to get focused around that activity, and certainly I've got friends for whom really their whole lives are built that literally is their life. That's their God. The thing they worship is, is Saturday morning park run, and, 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 and they're running. And, and the reality is that what you hope for shapes what you live for. And if what you're hoping for, if the thing that you live for, and it might seem bizarre to those of you who aren't interested in running, but lots of people think like this. If what you hope for most is that next Saturday you'll go a bit faster than the previous Saturday, that begins to shape everything about your life. Decisions you make about... What else you do in the week, the things that you eat, what, where you invest your effort, time, money, what you hope for shapes what you live for. The reality is that everybody worships something and we become the thing that we love. The thing which defines the kind of person that we are is shaped by the things that we hope for, the things that we're living for. And if we orientate our lives around those things, we, do, we always orientate our, things around the, our lives around the things that we love. Where, we, where our thoughts go, where we spend our money, where we invest our time. What you, what you hope for shapes what you live for. Now we're starting a new series today in the letters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, First and Second Thess Thessalonians. We'll be going through this over the next few weeks. And these letters are written to a church for whom Jesus has become the center of their existence. He has become the one for whom and in whom they hope, and he is the one who then is shaping their lives. And this makes them a model church. And, and what we're hoping as we go through this series is that we in turn will be shaped by their example. That Gateway Church, that we might be known in some ways as a model church. And part of the way that we can do that is by imitating the example of the Thessalonians. Now, I know that some of you in this room aren't even Christians yet. You here, it's brilliant to have you here. Uh, but you've probably got, well, certainly got questions about the Christian faith, maybe got all kinds of doubts about the validity of what it claims. As I speak this morning and as we go through this series, and I really hope that you stick with us as we do, ask, ask yourself this question. It's quite a tough question, but it's an important question. Ask yourself an honest question. What is the central love of my life? What is the... What do, I, what do I hope for? What is the thing that I worship? Because everybody worships something, 
Everybody has something as the central motivation, the central hope and love of their life. What is it for you? And, and my hope would be that as, as we go through this, if you're not yet in that place, you would see that the best hope we can have is hope in Jesus. So let's read uh, the scripture. We're going to read the first chapter. I'm going to give some background to the letter and then draw some application from the, these first verses of it. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're on page 1186 in these Bibles if you want to look at one of them. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember for our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived, am- how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's have some background. We'll think about some background to this letter to help us to understand what Paul is writing here and why he's writing it. So first thing to think about is the geography of this city, Thessalonica, what we now call Thessaloniki, at the top of the Aegean. Uh, there should be a map coming up at some point. Is it there, Angie? You're struggling. Has it disappeared? Uh, Thessalonica is at the top of the Aegean Sea. And this was a, it was the best um, the best port in the Aegean, and that meant that Thessalonica became a significant trading center. It was a, a hub city for the region, and then it wonderfully, wonderfully became a hub for gospel advance in that region as well. So it was shaped by its geography, and, and, and places, the culture of places is always shaped by its geography, just as our culture here is shaped by the fact we're on the sea, we've got the harbor, all that kind of stuff. The The culture of the place is also shaped by its history. And again, the history of a place shapes how people in that place feel, how they live, what they think. And it shapes how the gospel is received. And the history of Thessalonica shaped how the gospel was received there. And the thing about this city and about this region, Thessalonica, the city, and the region of Macedonia, was that this was a place that had been so shaped by the legend of Alexander the Great. Alexander, great emperor, extraordinary man, educated by Aristotle, who is probably the most famous, preeminent philosopher of all time. And then at the age of 20 in 336 BC, Alexander became king in his father's place, and he built an extraordinary world empire. I've got a beautiful map on the slides, which you can't see, but it, it, it stretched uh, all the way from Macedonia, all the way across through what we now think of as Turkey, down through to Egypt, all the way across Central Asia, all the way to, all the way to India. And the famous statement of Alexander is that when he finally stood in India, he wept because there were no more lands to conquer. He had this vast empire built in the space of 10 years, and 
He never suffered a defeat in battle, won every battle and just marched forward victorious. But aged 32, just being king for 12 years, built this vast empire while in Babylon, in an, of all places, Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And if you know anything of biblical history, the fact that this was Nebuchadnezzar's palace is incredibly significant. At the age of 32, Alexander dies. And his empire quickly collapses. The amazing empire still rings through history, what he did in, in 10, 12 years, but so short-lived. And then 100 years beyond that, 200 BC, the Roman Empire, which now is ascendant, uh, defeats the province of Macedonia, and by 168 BC, that defeat is made final and complete. And we're told that this was a, a as Rome did, this was a brutal occupation of Macedonia. The, the Romans took so much booty from Macedonia that the citizens of Rome were exempt from taxation for the next 100 years. These are the benefits of colonialism. That's what happened. Romans colonized Macedonia and their own citizens were exempt from taxation for the next 100 years. And they took 150,000 slaves from Macedonia. So this was an extraordinary act of colonial occupation that the Romans did in Macedonia. It has a profound impact upon how people live and how people think. Now that background is important for understanding the psyche of the city of Macedonia. Oh, I've got a map there, thank you. Um, so there was this, in the city there was this pride in the history of Alexander, one of the most extraordinary characters in history, this great emperor. There is also the reality of the humiliation of defeat, that Alexander only lasted for 12 years and then the Romans came and they took over. But there is also now a dependence upon imperial patronage, that the city of Thessalonica was dependent upon Rome and wanted to and needed to be loyal to the emperor, to Caesar and all that he represented. So in this context, in this city, you had to be careful who you were loyal to. Who were you were loyal to? This is a gospel issue. Who you're loyal to is always a gospel issue. Now, if you're doing our bread Bible readings tomorrow morning, by God's grace, this wasn't planned, this is just one of those things, tomorrow morning you'll be reading Acts 17. And in Acts 17, we read the account of when Paul and the other apostles first went to Thessalonica tells us that they were there for three weeks and then trouble gets stood up against them and it says this, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are defying Caesar's decrees saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Now this accusation was partially but only partially correct. The apostles weren't defying Caesar. They weren't trying to foment rebellion against Caesar, but they were proclaiming there is another king, a king called Jesus. They were doing that. And so this is a challenge. It's Jesus always challenges our loyalties and our identities. And talk of another king was deeply threatening to the whole civic structure of Thessalonica. Think about its history. The legend of Alexander, the reality of Roman rule, having to be careful about being loyal to Caesar. You don't come and talk about another king in a place like that. It's very threatening to the whole structure of the city. It's also threatening to your personal structures. Who's going to be at the center of who we are? Who's, who's going to be on the throne of our lives? And what, and what we see with the Thessalonians is that they, had their, well, they did have their world turned upside down. These men 
who've caused trouble over all the world. The gospel message did turn people's lives upside down. What it did for those who came to faith in Jesus was it brought them into conflict with their city. It brought them into conflict with their culture. But that was worth it. It was worth it because they had found a king who was better than Alexander. They'd found more security than the Roman Empire could offer. And they'd found something which was more precious and desirable than being socially acceptable. In Christ, they'd found something better. Now, the challenge for us, for each one of us in this room, is this. Will we be like these Thessalonians? Will we put Jesus at the center of our lives? Will we make him the one that we hope for? Recognize that he is a better king. He offers us more security, but he will, following him, will inevitably bring us into conflict with our culture. That's the question for us, the challenge for us. Now, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is just to run through some applications from the first chapter of this letter to see, to see how the Thessalonian church was a model church and to think about how what you hope for shapes what you live for and how that should apply to us, might apply to us here at Gateway. So the first thing is that Paul says he always gives thanks to this church. Let's to be a church that others give thanks for. Be a church, Gateway, that others give thanks for. The first thing the Apostle Paul thinks of when he thinks of this church, the first emotion that comes to mind is gratitude. He's thankful for them. We always thank God for you. That, that's a pretty remarkable thing. I, I think it's, it's actually probably not normal that when you think about somebody, is the first thing you think about them gratitude. Think about the person two rows behind you. First thought about them, is it gratitude? It might be. If it is, that's wonderful. But normally, I think often, there's a bit of a qualification, isn't there? Even if we are grateful for somebody, there's often a but to it comes. I really like them, but. I'm really grateful for you, but. There's no but <laughs> in what Paul says here. It's simply, we always give thanks for you. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's an amazing thing. The first thing that comes to mind for Paul when he thinks about this church is gratitude. How amazing to be that kind of church. Uh, last Thursday, John and I were down in Plymouth visiting our friends at Redeemer Church. We, uh, some of the people in the church had been evacuated from their houses because of the bomb. If we'd gone the next day, we wouldn't be able to get there because they were transporting the bomb through the streets of Plymouth. Uh, so we were fortunate to get there down there on Thursday. But that's a church. It's just a beautiful church. There's some amazing things that are happening in that church. They're, they're, they've started churches in the, two other churches in the wider region. They're looking to plant some new ones. And there's just such a sense of God's grace. In them. And to be honest, when I think about Redeemer Church Plymouth at the moment, what, the first thing that comes to my mind is gratitude. And there isn't even a but at the moment, which is pretty amazing, because most of the churches I'm working with, there's usually a but. I'm grateful for them, but. I think about Redeemer Church Plymouth, and I just think, I'm really grateful for them. Now, that's a wonderful thing. And wouldn't it be wonderful if people thought that about us? That when they think about Gateway Church, the first thing they think is gratitude with no but. And Paul thinks this way because of how they're living. He says they're producing. What they're producing is work and labor and endurance. They're demonstrating work, labor, endurance. But those things are the fruit of faith, love, and hope. The reason they work, labor, and endure is because they have faith, love, and hope. Now, Gateway Church, we need to be a church, and we are a church, which knows what it is to work, knows what it is to labor, knows what it is to endure. But that needs to be born out of faith and hope and love. 
because what you hope for shapes what you live for. It's possible to work, labor, and endure, and just do that for its own sake. The trouble is, if you do that, what happens in church life is a church becomes legalistic and dead. It's not a good place to be, a church which simply is working and laboring and enduring. But a church, if a church is producing work and labor endurance because it's a church which is full of faith and full of hope and full of life, well, that's grace-giving and life-bringing and joy-inspiring. And so we need to be that kind of church. A church, a church. Churches that are full of grace and life are easy to give thanks for. Churches which have faith and love and hope, which is work and producing work and labor and endurance. Those are churches easy to give thanks for. Let's be that kind of church. Second thing, be a church that's clear in our calling. We, we learned from the account in Acts 17 that Paul and his friends were only in Thessalonica for three weeks before they got kicked out. But three weeks is long enough for an amazing gospel work to happen. That in three weeks, there's a whole crowd of people who respond to the gospel and a church is formed, a church which... Paul has overwhelming gratitude for. There's, a, there's evidence of God's choosing of them in just that three weeks. Now, we have a much longer history here. Been in this building, as I can't believe it. Richard said we bought this building eight years ago. Is that long already? Amazing. And many of us in this room have got histories in Christ which stretch way beyond even eight years. We, we have a longer history than the Thessalonians did. We need to have a deep conviction. Look what it says. The gospel came with deep conviction. We need to have a deep conviction about God's choosing of us, a deep conviction about what the gospel works in us. I've been reading the Heidelberg Catechism as part of my devotions recently. The Heidelberg Catechism was a, a, a series of questions and answers written in the 16th century designed to instruct people in the basics of the Christian faith. And it's a really useful exercise to go through. And question 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, but why are you called a Christian? If you call yourself Christian this morning, why? And this is the answer the Catechism gives. Because by faith... I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. If someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Can you give that kind of answer? That's the kind of answer we need to be able to give. It's a great answer. Because of faith. I'm a member of Christ, and that means all of this. We need to have this conviction. Now, the Apostle Paul recognizes the genuineness of the Thessalonians' faith. He knows it. We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul only knew the Thessalonians for three weeks, but he knew who God was. And he knew what God was doing. And he knew that God had chosen them because of the evidence of their faith. The gospel was declared. They responded in faith this is certain evidence of God's choosing of them. Now, we, Gateway Church, we need to call this out of one another. We need to preach it to one another. We need to remind ourselves that we are chosen and called by God. And as we do that, that builds in us security and joy and confidence. It means that we come, and as we've been focusing on the last few weeks, we know that God is our refuge. Let's be confident in our calling. Let's be confident in our calling Gateway Church. 
Third thing is to be a church that knows who to imitate. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, but this is not flattery. This is about something much more profound about that. It's about what you hope for shaping what you live for. It is right for us as believers, as Christians, to imitate the Lord. But Paul also commends them for imitating him and the other apostles. And Paul says something very similar to the church in Philippi. Philippi was the city next door to the city of Thessalonica, the sister cities in the province of Macedonia. Paul writes to the Philippians and says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In order to be a model church, you need to imitate others who are themselves a model. And that's challenging for us in our culture of radical individualism. What we celebrate in our culture is being individuals. I did it my way. Nobody else can tell me what to do. I'm not going to conform to someone else's pattern. I do things the way I want to do them as I want to do them. The challenge is that Christianity in some way does call us to conformity. Romans chapter 8, it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, chosen by God. It's the same thing as Paul says in, to the Thessalonians. Those God has chosen are chosen to be conformed to the image of his Son. The whole point of being a disciple, of being a Christian, is that we're meant to end up looking more like Jesus. And an important way in which we do that, an important way in which that happens, is by us imitating others. Bible commentator Gene Green, which is a name that trips off the tongue, says this, Unlike many modern students, the ancients deeply appreciated the value of imitating model lives as a means of moral education, whether those models are parents, heroes, or teachers. Now, in the ancient world, in the world that Paul's living in, people wanted to imitate models. In our world, we're told not to imitate anybody. We're about radical individualism. That's a challenge. It's a gospel challenge. We also, of course, need to be culturally aware enough to recognize that what our society describes as radical individualism is more often than not just another form of conformity. That you go out and you talk to all the individuals and find they all believe exactly the same stuff. They all have the same political views. They all have the same ethical views. They all believe the same things about sexuality. Radical individuals, no, complete conformity. Completely predictable. I remember watching the, the Netflix documentary about Taylor Swift a couple of years ago, and it was all about how amazing she's come to these positions on different things. And that, com, No, utterly predictable. She thinks like every other young woman of her age thinks in, in the Western world. Completely conformist. That's the reality. People conform. Now, what are we going to conform to? The goal isn't cookie-cutter Christianity. It's not that we're all meant to end up looking the same and dressing the same and speaking the same. That's not the goal. Even voting the same. That's not the goal. But the goal is that we, as a church, look increasingly like Jesus. And part of the way that we do that is by imitating those who look more like Jesus than we do. So let's not be afraid to imitate those whom we ought to be imitating. That's a good thing to do. Fourth thing is to be a church that knows Holy Spirit joy. 
You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a connection between being full of the Spirit and being full of joy. In the midst of severe suffering, there was joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now in this context, the suffering the church was experiencing seems to be, it was the suffering of opposition from their culture, opposition from their city. So the whole story, you read it, you read, if you read Acts 16 on Friday, you're reading Acts 17 tomorrow, the whole story is that Paul goes to Philippi. It's the first time that uh, the gospel crosses from Asia into Europe. And uh, there's an amazing gospel response, but he gets beaten up, thrown in jail, amazingly rescued by God. So they come from a place of suffering, goes to Thessalonica, three weeks of teaching, and then after three weeks of teaching in the synagogue, this opposition arises. Again, a sort of a riot erupts in opposition to him and the other Christians. So there's severe suffering for the Christians in Thessalonica because the whole place is against them, the whole city is against them. And yet they know Holy Spirit joy. And what we see from this is that suffering doesn't have to rob us of joy. Now the last couple of days, uh, most of the women here have been at our women's conference and particularly focusing on the theme of lament. And learning to lament is an important biblical discipline to learn how to pour out your laments to God and there are things to lament about so I'm, I've been really weighed down to be honest the last few days by my friends Becky Durbin Ben and Becky lead a church just outside St. Louis in Missouri in the United States I'm meant to be there in May preaching in their church but uh, just two weeks ago Becky was suddenly out of the blue diagnosed with esophageal cancer she's a young woman never smoked bizarre and then uh, the latest update is diagnosed with stage four cancer there's basically nothing they can do at the moment might only have four months to live, barring a miracle. You know, <laughs> she's got four daughters, leading a great church. Uh, I'm lamenting about that. We're meant to lament. But even, please pray for them. <laughs> please pray for them. Uh, but even in the midst of suffering, suffering doesn't have to rob us of joy. Another friend of mine, Scott Marks, uh, who I, he's in Harare, he's in Barbara. I saw him a month ago when I was in Harare. This is Scott with his wife, Claire. Um, I had lunch with him, and, and an hour before I went to meet with him, he'd just been diagnosed with lymphoma. And uh, it was a, it's a unusual, just not a normal run-of-the-mill lymphoma, which it wouldn't be for Scott, because he's an extraordinary guy. It would be a special one. But it's taken him a couple of weeks to work out what kind of lymphoma it was, and he just started chemo last week. And he's sending regular updates, which are, to be honest, inspiring. Scott really is a hero to me. He, this is his uh, update from the second day of chemo. I went to bed early, but was woken before midnight with several bouts of vomiting. After a little sleep on the floor by the toilet, I woke again to diaphragm spasm on steroids, which lasted 3 a.m. An hour's sleep, then monster diarrhea till 5 a.m. I slept sitting upright on the loo until the final ejection of bile at about 6.30 a.m., and I was through the worst. Sounds grim, doesn't it? But then he says, Claire and I have enjoyed our time together so much. She has been so kind in her care and attention. I'm so thankful for the outcome so far and aware of God's amazing love through his people, through his common grace in the medical provisions, and through his specific power in my situation. What communicates in Scott's updates is both the reality of the suffering, that having cancer and going through chemo, is not something that anybody would choose. But he hasn't lost his joy 
because he's still full of the Holy Spirit. Now, Scott does have, by personality type, like many Zimbabweans, actually, he's an amazingly positive person. But this isn't just the power of positive thinking. This is about being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is about Scott's relationship with Jesus that is sustaining him through this. There's a Holy Spirit dynamic at work here. And we have got to fight for Holy Spirit joy. Got to fight for Holy Spirit joy. It's a fight I'm engaged in. February has been a pretty miserable month. February usually is a pretty miserable month. I hate February. In the new heavens and new earth, there will not be a February. Well, it will be like a Cape Town February, which is a different deal altogether. There will not be an English February in the new heavens and new earth. It's miserable. It rains the whole time, it's grey, and we all hate each other. That's what February is like. That's what it feels like. I feel like that all year round. Still grimace. And it's March and Friday. Yippee! Spring is coming whether it's February or July. We've got to fight for Holy Spirit joy. <laughs> got to fight for Holy Spirit joy. And, and part of what we do as we gather is we, we're fighting for Holy Spirit joy by being together and as we worship and as we take bread and wine and as we pray for one another. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for one another. Let's ask God today, as we come back into worship in a moment, let's say, Lord, would you fill me with your Spirit? Let me fight the fight for Holy Spirit joy, even if they're suffering. And then the last thing, just to put it together, is let's be a model church gateway. Let's, let's read the last four verses again. Verse 7. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is a church that others speak about as an example. People spoke about Alexander, the greatest emperor conquered this huge territory. Now they're talking about the church in Thessalonica as an example of what it is to be a model church. Gateway Church, may, people, may other churches speak about us like this. That we would be the kind of church which other people give thanks for and say, look at them. If you want to know what it is to be faithful followers of Jesus, if you want to know what it looks like to, for your hope to shape what you live for, go and visit Gateway Church. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's what people said about us? Now, how did this happen for the Thessalonians? Paul says it's because they turned from idols. They got rid of them. They put Jesus on the throne. They recognized Jesus as king. He became the center of their hopes, of their loves, and their affections. And they're hoping for Christ's coming. You're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That means they've got a bigger vision than the preoccupations of their city. They've got a bigger vision now than the history of Thessalonica with its glorious emperor and the horrors of Roman occupation and now trying to play the right political card to stay in Rome's good books. They've got bigger preoccupations than that. They've got a bigger vision. They've got a grander vision of what God is doing. They've got a bigger vision even than Alexander's empire, which so vast in reality only covered a small part of the globe. They've got a vision of a king who is coming who's going to make all things new. They've got a vision of 
the one who truly is king, who brings real security, not for 12 years, not for the 400 years of the Roman Empire, but security forever for all his people. They've got a vision of God as their refuge. They've got a hope. They've got a hope. And the hope they have is shaping what they live for. And that makes them a model of what it is to be a true church. Gateway Church, let's have that kind of hope. And let's be that kind of model. Yes? And amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and I'll pray. And we'll come back into worship. King Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we can say you are, you are king. And Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room that we would have you on the throne of our lives. That you really, you really would be the one in whom we hope. Yeah. And that would shape us. It might, it might be this morning that some even need to, there might be some repenting that needs to be done. I, I know this myself, I, I've felt the challenge of it as I've been preparing this week. All the other things which come in, all the other things which do put, the, put themselves, center themselves. Our hopes start to get centered around those things. It might be there's some things you need to repent of, lay down again this morning. Put the idols aside. You turn from idols to the true and living God. If there's an idol in your life, you need to put down, bury, get rid of. Bring it before Jesus. Repent. And thank you, Lord, that as we do that, as we put you center, we do find a hope which is truly life-shaping now and forever. So I pray for us, Lord. I pray that we would be a church that others give thanks for. I pray that we would be a church that knows Holy Spirit joy. I pray that we would be a church which does work and labor and endure because we're full of faith and hope and love. I pray that we'll be a church which is shaped less by our culture and more by the realities of who you are. That we'd grow to look increasingly like you. And the good news about you would ring out from us in this region and far beyond. In your precious name we ask it, Jesus. Amen.